are stories that uh, are very close to us. We don't have to go read a book that somebody else has written. We are the book, you know, that, uh, uh, that the Lord has, you know, that we've been written down and our stories have been written down in his book and we rejoice in that. Let's go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and um, we're going to be talking about our identity and I, I would just like to, uh, I guess, uh, bring out a little story here because that is of someone who maybe had a bit of a lost identity and um, the Bible is, is full of scriptures that tell us who we are and they're great things to read. In fact, sometimes I think it takes our breath away to think, is that true? Is it true that I've been made a son of God? Is it true I've been made a daughter of God, that I'm free from my sin, that I'm going to live forever, that the blessing of the Lord will follow me in my life? And uh, only the Holy Ghost infilling can really cement that inside of us. No one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And without it, we, uh, we're just trying to prop ourselves up, as many people do in churches. But there's this man, Saul, here I just want to read about. Chapter 15, and verse 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, Samuel's the prophet, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek... Uh, a nation, did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not both, uh, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. I think God was fairly angry with them. And that was what Saul was commissioned to do as the king of Israel. So just picking it up in verse 13, we find that uh, what happened was he went and did part of the job and not all of the job. And in verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear, because they were all supposed to be killed. And Saul said, they, I guess the people, he was a bit of a blamer, have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So he had a very spiritual reason as to why he had disobeyed God. And um, human beings can be good at making excuses. I think it starts when we're young. You don't have to go to a college to learn how to make excuses. Um, I think lawyers certainly know how to make excuses for people um, and they are expert at it. Um, but in this case, Saul did this all of his own. And in verse 22, we'll pick it up and we'll see Samuel's reaction. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You've brought all these things and you've made your reason that, oh, isn't it wonderful that we've, we've, we've sort of rejigged your plan a little bit and we're going to bring this as a sacrifice. And he said, actually, God's not interested. He just wanted you to do what he said. And then he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. That's a pretty heavy penalty. Let's think about this man for a minute, about Saul, the first king of Israel. Big strapping bloke, head and shoulders above the rest. And it appeared he might have been fairly humble at the beginning. He, uh, when he was chosen, says he went and hid in the stuff. Good Aussie word. And um, they couldn't find him, but eventually they anointed him as king. But something changed in him and a bit of pride seemed to get a, a hold of him. And so he still looked like a king. He was dressed like a king. He fulfilled the role of a king to the people. But in his heart, he wasn't a king. Because what we see here is a bit of, a, I guess, an identity crisis of a guy who's figuring out, who am I really? I'm going to withstand God who appointed me. What a dumb thing to do, but he did. And so he ends up that even though it seems such a small thing, that the punishment is great. I think there's quite a secret here in verse 23. It says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. What the Lord, I believe, is saying here is if you're going to rebel in the smallest way in your heart, you may as well be a witch. It's no different to me. If you're going to be stubborn in your heart, you may as well go and serve idols. You know, we in our human judgment have a great scale of things. Well, I didn't do as bad as them. You know, I'm not being immoral. I'm not drinking. I'm not killing anybody. But the Lord's saying, if we're stubborn, it's just as bad. Wow. It makes us sort of think then that the strength of our, our identity is how honest we are with ourselves before God. And so God here has identified Saul by his bad attitude was going to lose his role as a king. Now David, his father, um, sorry, David, not his father, <laughs> David, the next king um, that came along, was a, a man who actually made some serious mistakes there's something different, very different in David is that he was very good at admitting his fault. When his fault was shown to him, when he saw it clearly, he'd go, I give up, I'm wrong. Do whatever you have to do. I'll, I'll take the punishment. He was a very different man and he, he knew his own failings and he prayed often about them and the Psalms are full of his prayers about those things because he was aware uh, of his own nature. Let's go to Ephesians, uh, sorry, not Ephesians, Revelation chapter 2. While we're going there, um, back in 1936, that most of us wouldn't know anything about except what we've read, uh, there was a, a king anointed in England, Edward VIII. And he, uh, he was very uncomfortable with his role as king. And he was dating a woman who had been divorced once and was trying to be divorced again, an American woman. And, of course, that didn't go down well. 
uh, with the establishment, um, although they seem to have uh, managed to change their behaviour and standards. But at that particular time, it didn't go down well, and nor should it have. And he chose to marry this woman uh, when eventually she got her divorce uh, instead of being king over Israel. And while he was the one that stood to inherit the role and, and to do the thing that uh, his life had been prepared for, his brother, who ended up being King George VI, who had a real stuttering problem and didn't look like the goods uh, in a way on the outward appearance, ended up being, being the King of England and, um, and obviously had a different heart uh, for the job. Revelation chapter... Sorry, I haven't quite got there. Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write... Now, um, I want to sort of change this for a moment and I want to make it unto the angel of the church of Adelaide because... God could just as easily write a letter to us and, um, and say to us, how are you doing? And so these letters were written uh, to various churches, spirit-filled people. And he makes a particular point to this church in verse 4 and he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now this is love, isn't it? This is God trying to rescue somebody who's gone in the wrong direction. In fact, a, a church that had gone in the wrong direction. He said, I want to get you back to not only the way you thought, but the way you acted. That when you, you first were amazed at what I did for you and um, and you responded accordingly and you you could there was no limit in a sense in your desire to serve me but he said something's changed and he said if you don't do something about it I'm actually going to re remove you out of my book you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven just because of where your first love is not because of a great list of sins just because of where your first love is. And so he says, I, I, I would like you to consider very carefully of where you stand with me. And I, I guess the reason I wanted to bring this up today was that I thought, well, we've all been challenged here at this camp, I believe, with many of the things that have been said. And, and hopefully you're feeling that um, you've been heading mostly the right direction and you're walking the Lord and we all know we've got things to learn and you might have a bit of fine tuning. But if you're in a position like we just heard a couple of testimonies where Jed heard in this talk so many years ago something that went, whoa, I don't want to hear that. And, and it's something here is rubbing you up the wrong way. Or if you're in a position like Mark where... He felt that he'd been tricked into the cares of this world and it had stolen his love for the Lord. And, and you sort of uh, maybe need to think, am I in a, 
a rebellious situation or am I lukewarm? Am I, am I, do I want to do better than what I'm doing? Well, it's a good time for us to consider. And maybe the question I'd like to ask is, can you turn things around? Because that's what the church in Ephesus was being challenged with here, is can you turn things around? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Corinthian church, as we know, um, was a church that was in a bit of a disorder, uh, to put it politely, I guess. And um, they, they really did get up to some pretty silly stuff. In the first chapter, we find them murmuring and comparing between their favourite preachers and their favourite person to uh, listen to or to, to back up. Um, in chapter 5, I think it is, we find that there is terrible immorality that has been allowed in the church and not dealt with. And Paul is very, very concerned about it. Um, we find that, uh, that the, the, um, in chapter 6, that there are people, brothers, sisters in the Lord, who are taking each other to court. And before the unbeliever, they are fighting in court. And Paul's writing to them saying, what sort of testimony is this? You know, and uh, sometimes people say, oh, well, my business outside of the church has nothing to do with the church. But we are the church. That's our identity. Wherever we are, we are the church. When we're in court, people will see how we behave. I remember a, a brother years ago when he was saved and he's standing in the dock and the, uh, the judge actually commented on the change in him. He was so different from the person that he had been. And he ended up getting off of the charges that were, were laid at the time because he took his identity with him. And unfortunately, sometimes when the flesh creeps in, we can sort of say, and, and the love disappears, the love for the Lord, the love for our brothers in the Lord and sisters, that we could find ourselves saying, I am going to win this fight with this person. They are going to learn. And we don't do it God's way. This is what the Corinthian church was like. We read of how that they had the gifts all out of order and everybody just wanted to speak in tongues and they didn't care whether unbelievers were coming in or not. They were just all having a ball speaking in tongues and no interpretation, no assistance uh, to help the new people when they came in. But I wonder whether one of the biggest problems they had is here in chapter 11. And in verse um, 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So he said, when, the, when you're getting together in Corinth as saints... You don't do each other any good. And he says, um, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you and I partly believe it. So there are, there are people with opinions that are arguing between each other over this and over that, probably over unimportant things because arguments usually are over unimportant things. And, and people sort of running each other down or whatever. Verse 19, for there must be um, also heresies among you I can't read my Bible there. It's got holes in it. 
Just by the way, if anybody ever sees a Nelson wide margin, I can't get them anymore on anywhere. And if you happen to have one lying around or know somebody that has one, I'd love to have it because this one's uh, wrecked. Um, Anyway, for there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They've forgotten the communion. For in eating, everyone um, taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. And then he lays down very clearly what he had taught them before. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And and he goes through it in detail and and says, Do you remember what I taught you? That this is sort of the central part of what we are about. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And if we forget him and we forget communion, I think we're on the way out. And, and it's done, as was, has been mentioned here, there are churches that do it rarely. And um, I think I've m- mentioned this story before, it's Tom's testimony, my brother Tom. But uh, the, the, the reason he left, there was a bunch of reasons why he left the Pentecostal church he was going to. Um, looking for him, there he is. Um, but the final thing that got him was this particular visiting um, missionary uh, from Israel, he could certainly speak Hebrew. Okay, so he was Australian, but had spent some time in Israel and learned a few things and could speak Hebrew. And so he opened up the Psalms and sang a psalm because they're songs. And, uh, but then he began to sing and dance his whole talk. You know, I won't do it. It wouldn't be a good look. And um, but the thing, if that wasn't enough, eventually the pastor got up and said, "Because this is the last day we've got this visitor here, we need to hear more from him, so we'll forget communion." And praise the Lord, that got Tom, because he said, "This is about man. This isn't about Jesus Christ anymore." And so that's when he rang up Dad and gave me a call as well and ended up uh, coming to our meetings and, and really being convinced about the truth that we have. But if I can just take it a little further, how, it, how we're maybe getting affected, I think that a lot of people here would never miss communion if they could possibly help it. But recently... We actually got affected by Christmas. A lot of people miss communion because of Christmas. You start to think, who are we? What's actually most important in our life? And I suppose that uh, maybe the next question is, well, how does a Christian deal with Christmas? And... I suppose that uh, you know many of us, it's been mentioned here, like to take the opportunity to have a family gathering and nobody can complain about that. Um, maybe give each other some gifts if you like. Um, but 
The world, of course, has got many and varied ways of how it deals with Christmas. There are others who like to have a family gathering. Um, there are some who really want to party on. There's some who don't have a family to gather, gather with um, and they just celebrate in, in whatever way they can. There's a lot of drinking goes on, a lot of partying goes on. Uh, there are many who break their family ties after Christmas. It's, it's the time of year that they do it. Um, there's a lot of money spent that takes up a lot of people's thinking. Um, apparently it's been commented that uh, Gumtree will see $620 million worth of unwanted presents go online after Christmas. Um, there are, I guess, um, you know, those who get more religious about it. There are those who get into the, the, the really, well, re the religious part of it is not uh, what God wants us to do, but there are those who get into the Santa Claus and the tinsel and the, the meaningless things, which, you know, we're people who do things which are meaningful, not meaningless. And I guess that if, it's, if we've got to a point where we've sort of said, okay, I know where it fits and I will, I will use it the way a Christian would. Uh, so I can find a time to do it with uh, um, the people who've invited me and I'll, I'll see if I can witness to them. Hallelujah. And uh, we, we catch up with, uh, with family. We might find that it's a good time to catch up with our own family in the Lord if, uh, if we haven't had a chance. Um, but when we start to get affected to the point where it becomes um, bigger than that, maybe we've got to think about it. I saw a little uh, text recently. It was Brother Keen, actually. I think I see him here. Uh, connecting with the people from China. And they were starting to send Christmas wishes to each other uh, on their uh, text messaging and little pictures and so on of, of Christmas symbols. And he just simply said to them, um, we're a church that doesn't celebrate Christmas. And just put it back in its spot where it needed to be. The Bible says, learn not the way of the heathen. The heathen do things which are meaningless. But for us, we're not that way. You know, that we'll, we'll, we'll turn something to our advantage as we did last night. The world was partying and drinking and doing whatever. But our New Year's Eve is not like theirs. So we take the moment to say, well, let's, let's for sure thank the Lord for last year and, and praise him for next year. Hallelujah. But we're not going to get caught up in the other things which are meaningless or evil or, or bring us down. So um, I suppose that we... Um, maybe it's just drawn my attention to it a little bit that here we are that... Communion, which is something so meaningful, is being it's something so meaningless is competing with it. Let's just look at Jesus for a minute. Luke 20, 22. Luke 22. In verse 39. And Jesus came out and went as he was wont. It was his 
habit, as we heard the other night about Daniel, the man who knew his identity and never became a Babylonian. Jesus' habit was here to pray. He went to the Mount of Olives, that was his spot. And his, um, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. This is our leader. He gave his life for us. He didn't choose something comfortable. For a moment there he thought, can I or can't I go through with this? Because he was human. It was, part of him was human and the other part was God. And the human side is saying, as Jed was saying in his testimony, the flesh side was saying, I don't know if I can go through with this. But the spiritual side said, I can. Not my will, but your will be done. And if we allow that to be our guide then our identity will stay strong. Our identity of what what the Lord has made us and we will withstand the pressures of the world and we will try to persuade them more than they persuade us. We'll say, yeah, okay, we'll have some dinner for Christmas, but maybe we'll come around a few days before because I'm planning to go to the meeting on Sunday. I'm planning to go to camp or whatever. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to turn it to our advantage. Um, 2 Corinthians 7. what's so good about the story of the Corinthian church is that there is a second Corinthians. Second Corinthians is a turnaround success story and it really gives us great hope that if somewhere in our walk in the Lord we feel that we're not doing as well as we would like to or as we have then second Corinthians says to us it can get better and we read in verse um, Eight. Paul says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. I, I sort of had second thoughts about it. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. This, these, one is sort of a, a, a sorry, I got caught. Sorry, I have to pay the penalty for getting caught. And um, the other one, um, I guess I, I remember, I think I've confessed this one before, but I remember I got picked up at a particular spot a few times by the police for... Um, travelling more than 50 kilometres per hour in this particular section. And um, it was, it, for my, all my life, and I guess a lot longer, it's been 60 kilometres through that area. And, um, and, it, and when I got picked up, I got so annoyed that it was 50 instead of 60. It wasn't my fault. It was their fault. How dare they make this safe bit of road now 50 when it was always good at 60? And so I realised that if, if I wanted to save my money, 
I needed to learn to drive 50 in that section. <laughs> but the problem was in here. I was rebelling against it. And I had to look at myself and say, I'm not really sorry when I've paid my fine. I'm not really sorry as I pay this. I'm annoyed. <laughs> and, and I had to learn the lesson. And it's the same with the Lord, is that if somebody has corrected us and we are annoyed, we'll learn nothing. But when it finally gets to the point where we go, I get it, I was wrong. I really get it. I see, I see what you're driving at. And so godly sorrow, it works repentance to salvation. And in verse 11, for behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, what revenge, in all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And he delights in this church because something really great has happened. They've admitted their fault. They've gone to the Lord and said, how can we improve? How can we get back to where we were um, on, on fire for the things of the Lord? Repentance I've sort of got a little bit of a favourite saying at the moment. Um, I don't know what repentance looks like, but it looks great when you see it. I think it often has a white flag with it. I surrender all. I give up. I'm not fighting anymore. And I know that uh, sometimes people feel that repentance, you know, if somebody's out in the world uh, that has left the Lord that the best thing we can do is bring them in here so that they can see everything and that they can repent while they're here. I don't think that's the Bible way. That's not the story of the prodigal son. I believe that what the Lord is telling us is let them repent first. And when we see the right look, the right behaviour, the change of behaviour, then we say, I think you're going to fit in here again. Because if we bring them back in without the repentance, we bring in a problem. And, and people will just cruise around bringing their problem back into the fellowship and that's the last thing we need. And, and we've had some people who have been in this position and found it very tough to not be admitted back in, but afterwards they've said, thank you. Now I get it because they realised that they had to sort their repentance out properly and not just put a Band-Aid over it. Um, chapter 9. In verse 1. Now as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has provoked many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting on you uh, should be in vain on this behalf, etc., uh, etc. Et they actually were going to give a big donation. Well, I don't know how big the donation, but they were going to give a donation to another church. So they had now learnt about sacrifice. This was a growing group of people. It wasn't any more about themselves and about what they could get and what was important to them, which is what we read in 1 Corinthians. It was now what is important to others and how can they be blessed and how can they be served. And so they actually changed their behaviour and they started to dig in their pockets in a way that they maybe had never done before. They were digging in their pockets for themselves before this time, but things had changed. 
So I guess I just want to maybe ask a few questions in a moment. Let's go to Acts 19. Might read this one first and um, put a little bit of a um, series of questions. Acts 19 and verse 18. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, and many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. My questions are all basically in the same direction. What are you prepared to sacrifice to get your walk on fire for the Lord? These people sacrificed some things that were valuable to them before and God said, you know, obviously it struck their hearts. They thought these things are no good for us. Would you change your job, as we just heard in testimony, because it restricted your effectiveness in the Lord? I'm not saying you have to, I'm just asking a question. You know your situation, only you and God know it. Would you do something about your kids' sport if it meant they could get to the prayer and fast with you and learn the benefit of that? Um, Would you talk to the coach about maybe that sometimes they can't be available? I don't know. Would you change your phone identity, and what I mean is what shows on your phone... Um, if it meant that the work around the world and your brothers and sisters were going to get more confidence in you and we look better as an identity, would you actually go and change all your photos and all the things that are on there because you wanted your identity to look like you were guilty of being a Christian? You know, there are people who, I think Pastor John mentioned last night, who are flipping through their phones all over the world and they go to a place like Pakistan if, if they've got photos from Pakistan. And we've got people there who, and some of you I think know the story of what has happened with uh, one family in particular, how that they, uh, uh, the, the parents and the two daughters uh, were almost killed. And they were um, all taken by uh, police um, and all over uh, misjudgments Uh, false threats, that they were uh, anti-Muslim and they might be but they just don't say it. Uh, In fact they are but they just don't say it. um, But they were all about to be killed. For those who don't know the story, just to cut it short, uh, one of the girls there uh, was taken into prison and roughed up and uh, somebody noticed what was going on. A woman um, police officer noticed what was going on and stopped it. Uh, Later on, her sister was also taken to another police station, roughed up, and again, somebody stopped it. Uh, And the parents uh, were uh, in a uh, a, a terrorist attack. Uh, They were um, two of 16 that ended up going to hospital through this terrorist attack, and um, they needed to be uh, identified and a certain amount of money paid to get them out. It was all, all these things have always got to do with bribes. And eventually the parents were able to be released from that uh, uh, situation. I won't go through the whole story now, but the parents were released. They were going to be hanged the next day before they were released. 
and, uh, and the two girls were, the story was that they were just going to be taken and they would be history. And uh, as it turned out, there was a lot of prayer, there was uh, uh, various people trying to help and in the end all four of them were released. And I remember hearing from the, uh, the fa- father that when he came out he went to work again. Uh, the day he was due to be hanged he went to work again at five o'clock in the morning and was praying for people to come to the Lord. Um, now when you look at their photos and these people have got such a dedication to the things of the Lord they actually meet together for fellowship every day. They're, they're thrilled with it. I mean, it's life and death to them. It's really life and death. And so uh, when you, you see pictures, they're just really good to look at when you, you understand what they're going through. And, and the work is growing there. In, in the midst of this persecution, you think maybe people might back off, but persecution seems to sort of help growth. <laughs> um, it certainly did in the early church. Um, you could flip across and look at the Bali Fellowship if, if anything's coming from there and say, well, look at the good things that are happening. And then you flip across, and what does yours look like? What, does, what do our collective phone photos and messages look like? Would we do something about our phone identity for the good of the work? Um, would you do something like these people here about your worldly MP3s and movies and go and visit the sick? Um, would you give up a cruise to help a small assembly and go and really pitch in where there might be some great need? Would you get rid of your computer games so that you've got more time to study your Bible? Um, I suppose that many of us have found that when we first came to the Lord that these things just sort of fell off. And if they didn't, we were inspired by other testimonies. And we thought, I can do that. And when you read here in Acts chapter 19 of it, it says in verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Why? Because they understood all of a sudden that they were to lay down their life. Put it aside and now start to take up the things of the Lord. Read the word, get into it. Um, Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and just see what they were doing there in the early church. In verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptised, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I was going to say pears, but pears is okay too. Um, and, in, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things uh, common and so on. They sold possessions, they shared things around. Verse 26, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is a recipe just as sure as we had a pavlova recipe before, this is a recipe. This is a recipe for revival, 
of how it works. And if we pull it apart and we, we, we take certain bits out of it, 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 maybe it just won't come the same way. And, uh, you know, we want signs and wonders and miracles. I've got something very close to my own heart at the moment where I want a miracle. And, and, but I, I can't make that miracle happen. All I can do is lay down my life. All I can do is thank the Lord for what he's given me and that's all any of us can do. And just say, Lord, it's up to you. You look after that situation and we'll go and preach the gospel because so much good has been done for us. And you find then that boldness starts to come to you. When you say no to yourself, you actually get bold in what you can say to others. If you don't say no to yourself, it'll be very hard to say it to anybody else because you'll be thinking, hang on a minute, I haven't fixed that problem myself. How can I preach to somebody else? So when we start to say it to ourselves, we find all of a sudden we just want to go and talk and we'll talk anywhere. We'll talk on the streets. Remember the early days down at Beach Road and the, we, uh, we had one shopkeeper there. Loved us being out the front because it seemed to bring business. <laughs> he didn't send us away. Um, I think the police tried to stop one of our outreach groups years ago and they um, were very cheeky and were singing, we shall not, we shall not be moved. <laughs> they got a bit too bold. Um, um, couple, one more scripture. Uh, two, sorry. Titus chapter 1. Um, And in verse um, 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, Paul is writing to Titus, his, his young mate in the Lord. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So as Titus was going around, he needed to get the foundation of each group right get the foundation of each individual right. And you hear, maybe you don't hear lots of the sorts of things that various pastors do as they travel around. But um, Pastor um, Graham has been to uh, Nepal, amongst the many places he's been to, and finds that they have got religious habits that are not going to help their growth in the Lord. And they've got Cross, they had crosses up on their buildings and one of them I think had a double cross which is symbolic um, and, uh, and I think one of them had a Christmas tree in their, in their meeting and, um, and so he needs to go and to say look these are not the way the tools we use and to teach them about how to use the gifts teach them how to pray teach them how to use, what the word means how their lives will change and, so, and then when he goes back next time Hopefully it's 2 Corinthians or 2 Nepal and sees a better group that is starting to flourish. Pastor Brian has been to Africa uh, many, many times and uh, he, he sort of got knocked a, a little bit a while back because of a bull at a gate. He wasn't the bull at the gate, but there was another bull at a gate that sort of ran over him. But, he, uh, but he's, he's come to again and he's, uh, he's still enthusiastic for the word. But when he, he goes there, he teaches simple things that may not seem like they're the worst problem around, but 
I was there one time when dancing started to creep back in to the African church. And um, now Africans can dance. I can't. But I'll just, uh, I'll just tell you what they were doing. Um, all of a sudden in this rally, they, they just started again to quietly turn one foot and then turn the other foot. Now, if I turn one foot and turn the other foot, that's all I'm doing. When they do it, they dance. <laughs> and it actually looked very smooth in the whole of the group. But it wasn't what we wanted. And, um, and they, they've taught them that it's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. So they give them a tap on the shoulder and they say, this is why we don't do it. I went to Toowoomba some years ago with um, um, Pastor Kevin Quirk because uh, there was a group there that was uh, uh, developing, an African group that was uh, trying to be in association with us. And we went up to have a look at what they were doing. And uh, anyway, it turned out it was a fairly full-on Pentecostal church. And when the chorus had started, uh, the guy up the front was sort of waving his arms around a fair bit. And the, uh, uh, in, in the audience, they were getting down and doing the twist, which I hadn't seen for a long time. And they were, they were singing and dancing and ululating, you know, la, 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 the tops of their voices. They were going for it. And then they got the, uh, the chairs and put them up on their shoulders and it wasn't actually clean-up time. It was during the choruses and others had Bibles and the person next to me said, are they reenacting the children of Israel leaving Egypt? And they're congoing down the aisle with their, this on top of their shoulders. Hallelujah. And I turned to Pastor Kevin and I said, do you lead or do I? <laughs> we were about to take a dance. Um, he was taking photos and they were all sort of trying to get into the photo. <laughs> but we were getting evidence against them. <laughs> we're not part of that. But things have been set in order in our African churches where you would go there and you'd be proud of them. And you come back and you think, wow, this is not, this is not something foreign to us. They are like us and they inspire you with the stories and, and the, the way that they've died to these things in their life and, and left it alone. And so uh, uh, we need to do the same thing. Let's look at something to finish on. Uh, in First John chapter 3, the... the Scripture that was mentioned for uh, today. Somebody sent through something on my phone which I rather liked. It said um, a Cherokee Indian was talking to his grandson and he said, inside each of us there are two wolves. And he said, These, uh, one wolf is a good wolf and the other one is an evil wolf. And he said, these two wolves are warring with each other. And the grandson said to him, which one wins? He said, the one you feed. Good thought, isn't it? So 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. The more we do the things that God has called us to do, the more we will be like Jesus. The more people will think we are like Jesus, and they'll say, oh, you're a Christian. You look like a Christian. You speak like a Christian. You act like a Christian. And when Jesus comes back, he'll be looking for us. 
because we look like him, because we think like him. And it'll be, we'll be leaping up in the air with him. I hope this year is a leap year. <laughs> when Jesus comes back, up we go. We don't need to wait any longer, Lord. <laughs> Maybe we do. There's some still to be saved. Praise the Lord that we've got a job to do. But let us, as the Bible says, quit ourselves like men. Let us, let, let our identity not be mixed and cloudy and uncertain. But let us lay down the things that are no good to us in our walk in the Lord that are meaningless and grab hold of things that make us strong and go out into the battle and see how the Lord will work on people's hearts with our boldness and our testimonies. All the people said...